Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivivani, and today in Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. Ali Khan. Dr. Khan is the Executive Medical Director at Oak Street Health, which is an innovative network of primary care centers for adults on Medicare. He's a board-certified internist on the faculty of the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine and has spent his career blending his interests in medicine, entrepreneurship, and public policy to improve access to high-quality healthcare. So, Ali, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. This is one of my favorite podcasts, so I am thrilled to be on here with just a great team at Osmosis. I really, really appreciate it. And obviously, we've had many guests who I, I know you're friends with and, and been connected to, people like Atul Kasi and Sachin Jain. So it's great to finally have you on. Can you start by telling our audience a bit about yourself and what led you to pursue internal medicine? Yeah, it's a great question because you know, I think it's, it's one that I reflect on and I've had a lot of time to reflect on this year in particular. You know, so I, I'm a general internist. I practice what I would call, I guess, like complexitous care or, you know, clinical care for high cost, high need patients, often who have been beset by many years of structural racism, structural violence from a policy perspective or, you know, other societal perspective, and really have been really lucky to spend the past 10 years ensconced in care delivery models that try to meet people wherever they are, be there in their homes, within clinics, at their workplaces, in ERs, in hospitals, and to think about how we do the work of what I call like lysis of adhesions, right? So, Sometimes that scar tissue that builds up and distrust with American medicine is most poignant and most profound when we think about people who are at highest risk of complications in the healthcare system, right? Or people with multiple chronic conditions or people who wear the intersection of income insecurity and social trauma and poverty and disease all intersect into a place where you know, I think as Nakasi referred to a couple of weeks ago, you know, the five niners, right? Like no fault of their own have been beset by really this juggernaut of pathology that takes a long time to take care of and requires really, you know, accompaniment and navigation as we walk with people to try to get them on the better health journeys. So, you know, that sounds obviously super impressive to like our body. My parents are wondering, you know, like why I didn't become a cardiologist. Right? So I think like that's the that's the duality of all this. I think that keeps me humble in in a lot of the work that we do. I'm a native of the South. I grew up below the Mason-Dixon line in Virginia, and growing up, when you grow up sort of near proximity to the Beltway, it's really easy to think that one makes change through, you know, massive sweeping work, right? So it's you know big policy agendas investigative reporting, you know, like the work of, of Watergate and, you know, Woodward and Bernstein and stuff like that. So, you know, I went to college actually thinking that I would become like the next great American investigative reporter, right? And would sort of think about how to use the power of words, the power of people's stories to make change happen. And, you know, my parents were really interested in having me fulfill my genetic destiny as a South Asian. And then going to medical school. So <laughs> I, I, you know, rebelled against this for a significant period of time. But so found myself in one of these eight-year programs out of undergrad that combined an undergraduate experience with medical school at Virginia Commonwealth University. And I would say, I think like 
what I would tell like the 18 year old version of myself now is that that was a phenomenal decision because of the freedom that that offered to actually go in and explore exactly kind of these like dueling sort of fashions, right? I was a print journal major. I did a ton of legislative reporting for three years of the Virginia General Assembly. I got really into sort of like city, state, and local reporting and spent a lot of time in Southwest Virginia, Southside Virginia, parts of the country that had been honestly ravaged by NAFTA and by other major policy issues where not only were there massive social problems and massive issues of income inequality, but massive health problems as well. I think what I, coming away from that, what I realized was that I loved like the art and practice of storytelling. I loved that aspect of narrative and, you know, putting people's lives into print in ways that were respectful and hopefully advanced a common cause. But reporting on those stories, on those problems wasn't enough. I really wanted to work to solve them. And so interestingly, I think just through a bunch of different formative experiences, kind of in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> Especially in college and after college in the health and human rights arena, I sort of saw that medicine was this phenomenal way to actually differentiate and use like a, a novel voice at a table of trying to, you know, create change on a civic level or trying to affect change at a, you know, at a, at a community grassroots level or at, you know, at a, at a broad federal level, right? That like, there were tons of really intelligent people from law and social policy and economics and all sorts of things doing great work in that space. The power of the medical perspective of the visceral work that a physician or a nurse or another healthcare worker does to really contextualize and bring truth and power to the things that you know are being advocated for in that way was really profound and profoundly like unique. And so with, you know, with that kind of in mind, I said, all right, let's go to medical school. <laughs> and so, you know, joined my friends who've been in this program, went to medical school, dug into you know, biochem and anatomy and physio and histology and all sorts of things. But, you know, all along the way, sort of kept this idea in mind of like, what's the medicine plus, right? That keeps me, that keeps me interested. And I realize now that like what kept me going then was the idea of bringing people together in unique, potentially novel ways, right? Building things together, be they campaigns, be they organizations, be they policy referendums or, you know, resolutions and like AMA Hall of Delegates or stuff like that. And then seeing how we could like work through those mission-driven campaigns together, right? Which I think is, I didn't realize at the time, but I had a lot of the similar roots and like your journey in entrepreneurship, right? Or the journey of so many entrepreneurs that have been on this podcast in, you know, thinking about how we affect change at scale. And so the pleasant discovery was just that <laughs> along the way, I realized, wow, I actually really like clinical medicine. <laughs> and, um, and like, this is actually both incredibly humbling and like really meaningful to be able to deliver care to people, especially people who need that care the most, as you can you know, obviously relate from East Baltimore. But also it's just like, this is actually fun, right? Like, it's just like, there's, there's something really interesting about being able to just like fix something with your hands and take out some fluid or succeed in getting somebody's diabetes under control. And so, you know, once that realization in hand, there's been a bunch of stuff that I've tried to do to kind of go back and forth between sort of uh, doing in medicine versus doing in other aspects of life. But 
we made a pretty clear choice for internal medicine and you know the rest is sort of history that's awesome that's a great way to articulate all the interest you've had and how you brought them together so you know let's switch gears to your current role at oak street for our audience that doesn't know what oak street does can you tell us a bit more about the organization the goal and then what your specific role is at oak street and then obviously we're going to get into how covid has affected the work that you do there yes it's a, another great question and i think Stepping back for a second, I think Oak Street is a great American story, but also a great story, which you know may not make total sense in the way I until I frame it, of like American ingenuity set up by meaningful policy change in you know in American healthcare. So we've known for a long time, right, that the way that we care for seniors, vulnerable seniors, structure, you know, subject to structural racism many of whom are obviously either Medicare eligible or eligible for Medicaid as well in the context of being both low income and Medicare eligible. And that our historic underinvestment in primary care, where we spend, you know, five cents, six cents on the dollar in American medicine into primary care, means that far too many of these people receive fragmented, uncoordinated, just nonsensical care that not only doesn't get them healthier, but doesn't address their core needs, right? So many, many books that I stare on my bookshelf right now have been written about how to improve healthcare. Everybody's got a different tack on it. But the foundational question becomes whether you're looking at it from an educational technology philosophy, like osmosis, right? Or whether you're thinking about this from a pure policy perspective or economic perspective, like so many giants that we've studied have over the years, or whether we're looking at this from a social isolation perspective, like Dr. Vivek Murthy has, right? Is that we know that we can do better in the delivery of American medicine, particularly in primary care. So following the passage of the Affordable Care Act, a wave of incentives were unleashed by the Center for Medicare and Medicare Services, the Department of Health and Human Services and the like, to invite people to say, hey, we are doing work to try to introduce new care models into American medicine, take care of these populations, to take care of the urban underserved, to take care of the rural underserved in ways that haven't been done up to this point. And the way that we're going to do that is by changing the way that we pay for American healthcare being delivered. So instead of paying you, you know, sort of the eat what you kill model of receiving fees every single time you see somebody, we're going to make the simple shift to what we call capitation, right? that will pay you some amount of money on a monthly basis to take care of an individual in a population. And so to varying degrees, right? Then you're responsible for what they do. You're responsible for paying it out when you go to the ER, right? You're responsible for helping them get through a heat wave and figuring out like, is medication the solution or is making sure that somebody has an air conditioner and that their electricity is reliably on? Right. So, you know, shifting the shifting the focus, but shifting the work in American medicine by really putting in more money, but putting in much more freedom into primary care to be able to really take care of population. So Oak Street is one of the, I think, the real success stories in this space of saying, hey, there's a clear motive to come in and do the work of taking care of people who need our help the most, particularly in neighborhoods like the south side and the west side of Chicago, or Flint, Michigan, North Philadelphia, right? Like downtown Cleveland, 
northern Memphis, right? All over the country, there's just story after story after story of people who need that kind of help. And so Oak Street is then, you know, one of those actors. We are a publicly funded company, having previously been funded by both venture capital and private equity, that is attempting to be at its best a public-private partnership, right? To use the funding and the skills of the private sector set up by public policy action to try to solve bigger public problems. In this case being the quality of primary care delivery and healthcare delivery for really vulnerable urban populations in America. And so we started seven years ago with one clinic here in the north side of Chicago in Rogers Park, which to any South Asian listeners is right on Devon Avenue, which is you know the hub of immigrant activity for a lot in Chicago, particularly for us South Asians. And since then, we've expanded to over 75 clinics around the country, including 21 here in Chicagoland, where I sit. And for what I oversee as executive medical director, an additional three in Memphis, Tennessee, two in Jackson, Mississippi, and eight clinics, including three in partnership with Walmart in Dallas, Fort Worth. And so, you know, whether it's our newest clinic in Brooklyn, New York, or, you know, our oldest clinics in Chicago and Indianapolis and Gary, Indiana, we're taking care of people by meeting them where they are, right? These are big care teams taking care of no more of than like 400 to 500 people per, per primary care doll, right? Which is, you know, under a fourth of what a normal primary care panel is in the United States. But it, it's really critical that we have big teams of community health workers, nurses, and behavioral health specialists, and physicians, and MPs, and outreach community engagement leads, and all medical assistants, and scribes, and everybody else coming together to do the work required to get rid of that scar tissue, right? To ensure that we're delivering high quality care, and to make sure that operationally, we are crossing our T's and dotting our I's to make sure people who have all too often fallen through the cracks of American society don't fall through the cracks with us, right? And so that lysis of adhesions, sometimes, you know, from a, it's like, like when you're in the operating room, you have that bovie instrument that smells terrible, right? So sometimes it's very fine and it's very precise and it's really great. And sometimes it's just blunt, right? You're sticking your hand in there and you're trying to free up stuff and it's messy and you fail a lot. But it's a combination together of that work that enables us over months, over years, and over decades to actually change paradigms, right? To change people's lives and their trajectories towards better health. So that's what we do every day, <laughs> six days a week in, in all of our centers. It's that it's getting rid of that spark tissue through just unencumbered, really honest, high touch and high intensity primary care. That's really a great description. I love the analogy. I mean, at Osmosis, we're a teaching company and we often use such analogies. So that, that really resonated. We also had Marcus Osborne, who's the, as you know, really well, senior vice president at Walmart Health. And, you know, I, I understand that you all have partnered with Walmart as well in, in the Texas, in Dallas, Texas area. Can you talk a bit about some of those partnerships like Walmart and any other partnerships that our audience should be aware of? Yeah, you know, I think... Walmart's a great example, and I think Marcus is just such an incredible guy. The vision that he and his team have led over several years to think about how do we bring meaningful opportunities to transform health to people exactly where they are using the power of Walmart, right? A place where 
96 million Americans walk through every single week. And one out of every two Americans will walk through at least once a year, right? To say, can we be absolutely game-changing in how we unleash health equity in America, I think is, is really compelling, right? And their, their dedication to that vision at scale and to try a bunch of things to do it is, is, has been honestly such a joy to experience and, and work with alongside over the past few years. So very recently, we are the sort of first big external partner of Walmart's in their efforts over the past few years to launch Walmart Health. And so while Walmart is building clinics of its own design and import in places like Georgia and Chicago and a bunch of other places, they've also partnered with us to say, what differentiates you, Oak Street, is your attention to detail, right? The execution of those small things of crossing those T's and dotting those I's, where we've been really successful in engaging people where they are, getting them to come in to primary care, going so far as to go and pick them up. And, you know, our green colored vans that drive all over our markets to, you know, take people to and from appointments, to take them to and from pharmacies if necessary, even in occasion to get them over to their mammograms for their colonoscopy, right? So how we think about overcoming some of the social determinant barriers in healthcare has been through that kind of operational execution here, right? Of meeting people where they are, building trust, and then getting them to come in and then keeping them engaged through face-to-face visits, telehealth, you know, community events, big group classes, you know, talking about tortilla choices in supermarkets that we happen to be next to. That's the work that we do every day. At Walmart, I think the potential that we saw and what the Walmart team saw was then to take that execution game and take it to scale, right? So imagine our teams of community health workers and, and nurses and physicians having an appointment in the grocery section of the super Walmart, right? And actually not only just talking about dietary choices, but helping them purchase that in real time. Think about the possibilities of talking about exercise equipment, stretching, non-medication mechanisms of managing low back pain while in an exercise equipment area and being like, these are the right shoes you need to buy. This is the kind of mat you need to get. And if you can't figure that out, how do we work together to help you, you know, through that kind of income insecurity? It's about just the reality of saying you're going to be able to come to a place and knock out, you're getting the goods and services you need for a week, but also touch the base on your healthcare at that same frequency, right? And so many of us want to cast it aside for three months at a time until we need our next set of refills, right? So I think for us, it's been an incredible privilege to say, how do the three clinics that we've opened in Texas then set the stage for a potential partnership with Walmart where we can learn to engage not only the Medicare and Medicaid patients that we've engaged historically over our life, over our lifetime as a company, but how we can bring that Oak Street model of execution, of care, of empathy, of a commitment to health equity to people across the board, right? To children, to people with commercial insurance, to people who are self-pay, to people who don't have insurance at all, right? And so when we think about that social mission and the true mix of American society that you know finds itself at the crossroads at any Walmart across the country, and we think about the potential to combine that with our care model, it's just something that for I think any of us, and this resonates probably very deeply for osmosis, who think about making real societal impact 
at the level of an entire nation or even globally. It's just incredibly compelling and enticing. Absolutely. I mean, we're seeing so much innovation in, in delivery, and obviously COVID has been a catalyst for a lot of that. So I know we're coming up in time, so I had two other questions for you. The first is, you know, how has COVID-19 affected your work at Oak Street, and what are some of the lasting changes you think will happen, not only at Oak, but in general for the healthcare system as a result of COVID? You know, this is another one where I could probably answer for far too long, so feel free to cut me off at the knees anytime you need to. I'll say this. Obviously, this pandemic has taught us a ton, and nobody wishes the kind of devastation that this has wrought on American society in so many ways. One interesting thing, I think, you know, I, I used to say half jokingly a few months ago to, you know, people like Shantani Nandi and others, was like, well, there's never been a better argument for value based care delivery, right? I think there's so many things that this pandemic has exposed. Shiv, you've been amazing in terms of highlighting so many of these over the past few months in the context of the podcast. One thing that I'll, I'll suggest is that maybe unique for the audience is that this has shown that the structural hypotheses underlying the delivery of American medicine today, especially around fee-for-service and medicine as the core of it, have just been completely exposed, right? It is not feasible from either a societal perspective in terms of adding value, nor is it feasible from an economic perspective that we can only keep physicians and nurses and healthcare teams going as long as they're seeing people face-to-face in an office, right? That's not, it doesn't make sense in terms of meeting people where they are. It doesn't make sense when it thinks about how we take care of populations. And it doesn't make sense when you think about the significant economic and workforce damage that has occurred within American medicine because of the worst of the pandemic when we were unsure what to do. And you know, we should be grateful, of course, to governmental action from CMS and from other actors to keep many practices afloat, to liberalize telemedicine, to really shift us 10 or 15 years ahead to say, you know what? What matters is that you are engaging with a patient. It doesn't necessarily have to matter where you are, what kind of technology you're using, how you're talking to them. But the act of that engagement is what matters, and we should reimburse that. And at, you know, at the baseline, that kind of gets into like arguments around site neutrality, right? That like we should should we reimburse telehealth the same way that we reimburse in an office visit? But I think it's bigger than that, right? I think more critically. Those of us in the value-based space at Oak Street, we didn't cut anybody's paychecks. We didn't take away people's bonuses. We didn't lay off anybody on our clinical teams. We never had to send messages to people like many of my friends got being like, please encourage people to come in as opposed to going into telehealth because that way we can achieve some additional facility fee or something that'll help us garner some additional marginal revenue, right? We were able, because we are paid every month to take care of people, irrespective of what's happening, we were able to say, what makes sense in this moment? So while other people were scrambling to like figure out the exact number of telehealth visits they need to do per day in order to keep their practices afloat, we were saying, well, we have a bunch of drivers who aren't driving people to and from appointments right now because we went from 0% to 94% telehealth in 10 days. So why don't we use those drivers 
to deliver food and toilet paper to people who can't leave their houses and or who can't afford it right now, right? So we made almost 15,000 deliveries in a matter of weeks to enable people to like, you know, safely stay in place. We were able to take a ton of individuals who were working normally on setting up community organizing events and getting people engaged with Oak Street to be able to join us as patients and turn them into one of the largest sort of call center operations, screening for social isolation and loneliness, right? And we can take the evidence from Dr. Murthy and from you know Sachin Jane and from others on how to do that really well and make that happen in real time in a matter of days, right? So for us, what the pandemic exposed is that when we pay for the right things in American medicine, we can do all the things that people need when they need them. And we don't have to be sort of confused by dueling incentives in American medicine. Right now, right, as we've been working really closely with the city of Chicago, with the varying states and cities that we're in, to say how we are in the neighborhoods, the zip codes, the census tracts that are being hardest hit from a COVID perspective. In the communities that we serve, our percent positivity of testing, both within Oak Street and across the board, is sometimes upwards of 30-40%. Every community we serve is like Watts in LA County, right? Where I work versus where I live in downtown Chicago in the loop, it's a 1.6 mile difference. It's a 16-year life expectancy difference. So structural violence in these primary care deserts has been going on for decades. But for us, then, we can be a reliable partner because the federally qualified health centers, the academic systems that, we, that are also that are otherwise in town, the other health systems, they're trying to stay alive <laughs> because of their underlying payment mechanism. And so for us, instead, we can say, yep, we'll be the only primary care system in Chicago to go buy two ultra-cold freezers to be able to deploy vaccines when the city needs us to. Right now, we stood up a 100-person team in 13 days to start doing community testing once the Chicago and Illinois Departments of Public Health received now testing from the federal government. And we are doing literally hundreds of tests in all of Chicago's hardest hit zip codes, all of which are black and brown predominantly, right? To say, come get free testing. We are not charging you. We are not billing your insurance. We just want you to identify if you're sick or not, right? And we'll do the same thing with vaccine deployment. So for us, I think, in the middle of all this, we also went through an IPO, which is a whole other podcast for another time. But what I'll say is this. I've been working in the private sector, which is a, a weird place to get to for somebody who went to a, you know, a school of government in the middle of med school. But for 10 years, trying to demonstrate to people that private actors can affect public good. And ironically, <laughs> the funding model that we've been able to access in the private sector has demonstrated that us and organizations like us are actually the steadiest places to be for reliable, on-time, consistent presences of health in the communities and in the zip codes that need us most. And so I think that like that call to action, if nothing else, is what I hope will accelerate how fast we change care delivery for years to come. And I apologize, I went on far too long, but I get very passionate about this. No, it's pretty incredible. I mean, it's a big question and pretty incredible the work that you've done. My last question, and just very briefly, is just what what advice would you give to people considering careers in healthcare right now about meeting the challenges of COVID and beyond? We need everyone in, right? This is not just a call to the best and brightest. This is not a call to people who feel 
that like watching ER and Grey's Anatomy or Scrubs is is their life's work. If you are interested in tackling the biggest, hairiest problems in American or global society, and whether you think about that from an equity lens or a business lens or a policy lens or a storytelling lens, right? There is nothing that has greater impact, I think, and I'm very biased, towards changing the lives of others for the better than a career in healthcare. And clearly, and this podcast, all three of us on this podcast are great evidence, that can go anywhere, right? There's innumerable ways to add value. But we have faced, you know, twin pandemics this year. There are many more pandemics ahead of us. We need a world that's ready and a world that thinks about health and all policies and a world that's prepared. And that work needs phenomenal people who are mission-driven and who believe that this work is really important and are willing to get their hands dirty. And so if that sounds like you, let me give you my phone number right now because (laughs) that's exactly who we need at places like Oak Street, but more critically, in all parts of the healthcare ecosystem to make sure we don't ever lose 300,000 Americans ever again. That's some really great and inspirational advice. So Ali, I'd really like to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. And more importantly, for the work that you're doing leading the medical team at Oak Street to raise line and improve healthcare capacity and quality. Shiv, it's a, it's a pleasure. And thanks so much for having us. It's an honor to be included amongst this all-star cast of characters. Awesome. And with that, I'm Shiv Wilani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line since we're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.